May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. When the poets and the songwriters of ancient Israel found themselves in places of disorientation and dislocation, they didn't hesitate to give voice to that pain. They wrote and spoke and sang truthfully, bold and sometimes difficult words uttered to God in prayer and in songs of searching lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered thee, O Zion. In Babylon, far from the familiarity of home, Far from Jerusalem and all that it symbolized as the heart of the nation and of its faith, thousands of Israel's citizens taken as captive into Babylon in a military maneuver intended to systematically strip out from the nation those who had made it what it was. Leaders, people with education, skilled artisans, poets and musicians, all into exile. And then word had come to those people living far from home in what amounted to prison ghettos, that those remaining behind in Jerusalem had mounted a desperate rebellion, and that in response the Babylonian army had destroyed their beloved city, raising to the ground its temple. The stories that were making their way back to those exiles spoke of horrors almost beyond imagination. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. Now remember, these are the words of a songwriter. Why would a songwriter talk about leaving their instruments hanging in the branches of the trees? Because our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Imagine couple of Babylonian soldiers patrolling the district in which the Israelites had been confined, maybe stumbling across a group of people huddled around a fire, seeing that one of those Israelites sitting there is holding a harp, a soldier speaks to him, hey Jew boy, sing us one of your folk songs, hey Jew boy, get the people dancing. How could we sing the Lord's song in a place like this? The psalmist cries. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. Now think about that for a minute. With his harp now abandoned, hanging on the branch of a tree, this songwriter declares that to cheapen the songs of Israel by singing them as quaint entertainment would be to forget Jerusalem itself. And if he becomes guilty of forgetting in that way, he prays that his right hand will wither and his tongue become useless. He prays, in other words, that he will cease to be a musician. Yet how does he give voice to that despair that he's feeling? He does it by writing a new song. It's as if these writers can't not keep writing. We opened our worship this evening by singing together a setting of some of these verses of Psalm 137. 
It was arranged by Don McLean and Lee Hayes. It was released on Don McLean's classic 1971 album, American Pie. With just those few lines of this song set to a spare and haunting melody, McLean captures the sorrow-filled longing voiced by that psalmist. I want us to just sing that through one more time, so try to catch the melody with us. doesn't stop there, though. Not at the shedding of tears of lament, important as those tears are. I'd like our reader to return to the lectern and pick up the psalm again at verse 4 and then read right through to the end. And listen where that psalmist goes. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, Tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. On Sunday, September 16th, 2001, just five days after two jet planes were crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, the great African-American preacher Jeremiah Wright stood in his pulpit in Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago with the full text of that song in his hand. Noting that most of us are only familiar with the first six verses of Psalm 137 and that most have never heard a sermon that touched any of the thoughts or feelings expressed in the last three verses, Wright boldly placed the entire text before his community as a way of beginning to come to grips with the shock of 9-11. He spoke of the movement that the psalmist makes as his song progresses, a movement from reverence to revenge, from worship 
to war. They want somebody to destroy those who've devastated them, he preached. In fact, they want God to get even with those who did evil. And let me now quote from his sermon at some length. It is a move that spotlights the insanity of the cycle of violence and the cycle of hatred. Look at verse 9. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. The people of faith by the rivers of Babylon, how shall we sing the Lord's song if I forget thee, O Jerusalem? The people of faith have moved from the hatred of armed enemies to the hatred of unarmed innocents. The babies. The babies. Blessed are they who dash their heads against a rock. And that, my beloved, is a dangerous place to be. Yet that is where the people of faith are in 551 B.C., and that is where far too many people are in 2001 A.D. We have moved from the hatred of armed enemies to the hatred of unarmed innocents. We want revenge, we want payback, and we don't care who gets hurt in the process. It is an astonishingly powerful sermon to listen to, and when you remember just how few days it is after the original 9-11, it's almost, it's almost shocking, the strength of his message. Yet what label was used to describe the 2003 bombings of Baghdad? It was called shock and awe, technically known as rapid dominance. Whatever it's called, do you suppose for a minute that those bombs fell only on Al-Qaeda members or on the architects of 9-11? Yet somehow it was not only justified, but in many quarters celebrated as right and just repayment. The people of faith have moved from hatred of armed enemies to the hatred of unarmed innocents, the babies, the babies. Now be clear, that prayer of blessing over those who would dash the Babylonian babies against the rocks is there in the Bible. Yet rather than standing as a glorification of violence and vengeance, in the end what this psalm does is to unveil violence for what it is. There's no sense in which this songwriter has been prevented from feeling this desire for vengeance, even of praying it in his song. It's just that God is conspicuously silent in the face of this prayer. The Babylonians remain in control, their babies safe. And the exiles will mount no desperate plan of escape or rebellion. And then finally, God's silence ends. And a letter arrives from the prophet Jeremiah, and he writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not de decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Not vengeance against Babylon, but prayer for Babylon. Pray to the Lord on her behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Instead of innocent children of the Babylonian enemy being brutally murdered, Israelite children are to be conceived and born and nurtured right there in that place of captivity. Now in the Bible, babies always mean hope. Even more so babies born under circumstances of chaos or loss or dislocation. Violence, revenge, and the murder of innocents will not be the final word here. Instead, it is new life, new beginnings, new hope, all cutting against the grain of that cry for vengeance. And in the grand biblical narrative, even Jeremiah does not have the final word. Jesus is God's final word to the world. And in face of his own violent death, he speaks the most powerful counter-message to this psalmist and to anyone else who's ever felt a need for vengeance or retribution well up in our souls. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In the very fabric of his life and in these words spoken with dying exhalations from the cross, Jesus once and for all unveils violence as powerless. We're still learning that, of course. We still think it has a good deal of power. Because for all that we're created in the image of God and recreated through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are all of us caught up and implicated in a very long and tangled human story. It's why it's important to dare to hear this psalmist speak of his disoriented thirst for vengeance. He's one of us, too. And in his place, we might thirst for the same. It's important to hear it on a Sunday in Lent, on which we'll again, at the end, sing Jesus' counter-message. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. In the end, that message is the only word we have to offer to a world seemingly locked into this endless cycle of violence and vengeance and hatred. But it is the final word. And inasmuch as we speak it now, it will be spoken at the end of all of time and history. And it's that which we anticipate. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.